On the show today, breaking news, a seventh arrest in the AKA murder case. We'll unpack the latest developments around that police breakthrough. A report from StatsSA shows the increase of child rape cases in the country. KZN State of the Province address underway. SARS goes after Sasprin for alleged gold mafia money laundering. The bank is defending itself. And the multi-party charter outlines how it will end load shedding. All of that over the next hour. 702. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Straight into breaking news. We had that press conference last night from the police uh, minister and the KZN police uh, commissioner as well about six arrests made in the case of AKA Keenan Forbes, who was gunned down in uh, Durban on February the 10th last year. So six arrests announced last night. We have breaking news. A seventh arrest has been made. Let's go straight to Brigadier Atlende Mate, the police spokesperson. Brigadier, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, tell us about the seventh arrest that has been made. Well, a very good afternoon and thank you uh, for, the, uh, for the opportunity. We can confirm that um, we have uh, arrested the seventh suspect. He was arrested um, this morning in uh, KwaZulu-Natal and he will be added to the list of suspects that have already been rounded off and arrested uh, by police uh, thus far in, in this case. We can confirm that he is one of the spotters that we had been um, looking for as the SAPS. You will recall that now in custody we have the coordinator who we believe is the person that assembled this uh, particular team uh, to execute uh, the hit uh, on, on AKA. Um, he was also the suspect that distributed the money. We know we have uh, the sh- uh, two of the shooters uh, that are already in custody. We've got also other spotters that had been following AKA from the airport to the hotel and ultimately to uh, which restaurant where he was um, uh, killed. Brigadier, are the police confident that they now have everybody involved uh, in this conspiracy, that everybody that you are looking for has been arrested? You described uh, the arrest of a mastermind. Is there a potential higher uh, level of of, of person uh, that could have been part of this conspiracy? Look, um, as investigations unfold, uh, more information will come to light. But we are confident that we've got the main players. As I've said, we've got the coordinator, we've got the shooters, um, we've got the spotters, we've got evidence uh, that is supporting um, this, um, these suspects uh, that will tell us that these are the suspects uh, that executed this particular crime. Um, but I won't go into much on what to, uh, critical evidence um, we have gathered thus far. Uh, but um, w- our investigation started as early as um, the, the, on the day in which the murders um, uh, 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 transpired. And I can tell you since then, the provincial commissioner had assembled a, a team of experts, uh, including seasoned detectives, analysts, technicians um, that were working closely with the director of public prosecutions in KwaZulu-Natal. I think it's important to highlight that this particular case was prosecuted 
driven uh, because the strategy that we utilized was to um, firstly round off all the suspects and then bring them before court and charge them on this murder. Um, so we had arrested most of these suspects on other charges and kept them in custody up until a time when we were confident that we had rounded everyone and we had everyone in custody. I must tell you that we had a concern that these are hitmen. They are trained, they are well coordinated. So once you rush to announce that you have three or four in custody, some of those that are outstanding would be taken out because that's how they're operating. So mm. we are quite, you know, we are quite encouraged with the manner in which our team has also handled this uh, case. It was, it was quite complex and we, we really limited all communication and we, we you know, we, 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 we played our cards and we, we put our cards close to our chest ensuring that we are tight-lipped on this investigation for the sole purpose of ensuring the integrity of the investigation, but right. to also ensure that, um, you know, these suspects that we're looking for do not run too far away or do not get taken out. And, and yeah, so the focus was really to round up a round of everyone that is involved. If there is a person who ordered the hit and gave the coordinator instructions, we are hoping that uh, the trial will unravel that. I appreciate that you may not be able to answer this question, but are you confident that you have a motive at this stage? Well, at this stage, um, we we do not have a motive thus far. Uh, but what we do know is that we have the right people and those people will be made to answer to the crime they have committed. We hope that the trial um, will uh, tell us more. Uh, more information will come uh, uh, forward uh, to light as to uh, what was the motive behind uh, this killing. But what we do know, the information that we have now and that we have uncovered is that the target was AKA because he was the one that was followed from the airport, from the hotel and ultimately uh, to wish. Brigadier, thank you very much. Brigadier Atlende Mate speaking to us there, giving us uh, the latest on that breaking news. A seventh suspect has now been arrested, one of the spotters. So now seven people in total, four will appear in court. And uh, interesting detail there uh, from the brigadier. So it was prosecutor-led, which is important, right? This was a strategy, uh, the Troika strategy implemented by the Scorpions that they seem to have been using here. And they also kept many of these suspects on other charges uh, while they investigated this case. So let's unpack that now with Dr. Guy Lamb, criminologist and crime and violence expert from Stellenbosch. Dr. Lamb, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for, for your time. You were listening in there to the Brigadier as she uh, unpacked um, the developments around this case. Uh, and, and, and interesting, as I pointed out, the strategy that the police have, have taken here. What are your thoughts on it? Absolutely. Good afternoon, uh, Mandy. Good afternoon to your listeners. I think this is really important uh, because I think the police and the criminal justice system and kind of leadership there has sort of learned the lessons of other high-profile cases that have kind of gone awry, such as the Santa Moira case. Now, here it's around we the focusing on the end game, the end game being security convictions. So I think they're sort of focused on making sure that you've got a solid case. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of criticism of... Um, certainly of the police and, and of, you know, the Hawks um, and the MPA in relation to this because it was taking such a long time. But now we actually now have some, you know, feedback from them, which really kind of motivates and justifies why it's taken such a long time. So the sense of around, you know, kind of having quite a rational, logical, painstaking strategy to identifying who the perpetrators are, 
um, you know, kind of arresting them on other charges. So you can hold them so you can then go and arrest other people. So, you know, it's, it's, it all has the sort of hallmarks of quite a solid case. Of course, we don't know who the perpetrators are yet. We don't yeah. know who the mastermind is yet. And of course, this is around, you know, a case going to court. And once it's in court, then there's all sorts of other dynamics at play. I was quite surprised by the uh, degree of detail that has been made public by the police and, and Becky Kille, um, whether it's a pro or, or a con in terms of satisfying the, the public appetite for information. So we have a full timeline of arrests. We know exactly where each suspect was arrested. We know which vehicles were involved. We know um, the, the amount of money that was paid over, uh, that it was a total of 800,000 rand, 130,000 rand paid to each of the suspects. What are your thoughts uh, on, on this approach? I think this really sort of points to quite a competent team. And I think also this realization that we do need to communicate with the public because you know, the state has been criticized about the sort of, you know, alleged slow pace. Um, also around not wanting to have, you know, unnecessary rumors flowing around and really to try and demonstrate to the public that the police have been taking this very seriously. They've kind of invested a lot in the investigation of this particular case and really want to demonstrate that they're taking it seriously. I think that's the sort of detail demonstrates that, but it also demonstrates that we've got, you know, high quality people that are working on it. We know historically that it's incredibly difficult to uh, convict the um, the person who actually gives the instruction for a hit. Uh, we know, I think of the Charlene Henning case as an example years ago. There are multiple other examples we can look at where uh, you need the domino effect of, of plea deals potentially. How how confident are you that the police have learned their lessons from the Senzo Miyua case uh, and that they'll be able to not just get the button men, but will be able to get the people that actually ordered it. It's so difficult, I mean, because they've collected evidence in relation to ballistics, in relation to CCTV. Um, I don't think they would have necessary evidence about individuals, you know, sort of surveillance type of uh, evidence where, you know, you are, you've got people on either audio or video kind of admitting to being involved in this particular crime. But I don't think we've got that there. Um, but I think certainly we've kind of built up enough evidence to implicate certain individuals. Um, that, you know, the NPA would not be taking this court if they did not have sufficient evidence to do that. I think it's also important around the nature of the interrogations that happened. Hopefully that were lawful. Um, so therefore they're, you know, the kind of evidence that's gathered there can be presented in court. Um, but it ultimately comes down to we, we always struggle with um, the sort of the actual person who has a, a particular beef with the person who is assassinated and what the motivation is there. That's all we don't know enough about that. You've spoken about um, what this means for the strength of, of the case and the um, the way that it looks. I think you said it was the hallmarks of, of a solid case. Do you think that we are too quick to be critical of, of the police and in this instance we should be applauding them and they've done really solid work here? I think they've done solid work here, but I think it's also a, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, they've demonstrated that, you know, if you, if you follow the sort of formula that they're following now, you know, reflecting on sort of mistakes and, and weaknesses of the past, that you can you know, kind of build a much more solid case and a high-profile case. Um, you know, it's important to demonstrate to the public, but then it's also questions around why you can do it, but you only do it on some occasions when there's a lot of sort of public visibility and sort of public concern about the case, where most other murder cases, most other assassinations don't get anywhere close to the sort of attention and pressure.
Dr. Guy Lamb, criminologist, crime and violence expert uh, from Stellenbosch. Uh, thank you very much for your time and for unpacking all of that. So we now have breaking news, a seventh arrest in the AKA case. One of the spotters has now been arrested as well. And uh, just just the degree of detail being released by the police minister, Becky Kele, and the provincial commissioner, Lieutenant General Nkantla Mkwanazi, last night. I do think that in many instances, we are quick to criticise the police. In this instance, as Guy Lamb says, it does have the hallmarks of a solid case. We have so much detail about who was involved, uh, the cars that were involved, the payments. Um, I worry about a lack of motive and the expectation that this will come out in the trial, but really it comes down to prosecutions and convictions and making it stick. But I do think that we should applaud the police here in this instance. If you missed it last night, have a listen to what the KZN Provincial Commissioner had to say about these arrests. The strategy that we employed was that after identifying these six, we're going to look for parallel cases that they are involved in. And we're going to arrest them on those cases and keep them in custody. But don't charge them on the case that we're investigating, the main case 85 uh, of, of, of uh, February last year, which happened in Florida. So the reason, the reason for that is because we wanted to make sure that we get almost all the suspects, uh, especially the organizer of the hit. So after identifying everyone else, and we could realize that of the four, of the six suspects, at least four of them, we have parallel cases that we can link them with. So we started pursuing those parallel cases. One of them was the case that was talked about in the media, where we went to Cape Town and we arrested someone in Cape Town. I'm sure you might have heard about it. And we brought them back here. We charged a person on a parallel case, but the very same person was linked to this case. But we didn't charge him on the case. Um, so we went on with, with the rest of these arrests that we effected. The first one being the 22nd of April, where the organizer of firearms and vehicles, the person who was renting this out, uh, was arrested and was charged on, on uh, different cases, as well as uh, most recently he's now been uh, linked to this one of, of uh, case 85. On the 24th of October, that's when we effected our second arrest. Um, this was a sporter who was arrested also being involved in murder in another case uh, that, that happened except the one that we are talking about. On the 14th of December, we arrested the third suspect. Uh, and that suspect was also linked with another murder case that happened in Mazimtoti, including, uh, we, but we did not charge on this one that we are talking about today. On the 24th of February, maybe let me explain this one. After identifying the two suspects that we're looking for after chasing them the whole year, we found the house where they were hiding in Swaziland. So through information, we could spot them and we got informers to tell them and give us their photos and we could confirm they were about. So because we wanted to follow the law, and, and I like South African media because you tend to understand now the law, that we can't be talking about things that are still in court, especially when individuals have not been charged. So in this case, we approached the NPA, an affidavit was prepared, and we submitted through Interpol. 
So the point again here is that this is a prosecutor-led investigation and this is uh, reminiscent of what the Scorpions used to do around a troika uh, approach and I think it's really effective and I'm very impressed by the way that the police have approached this, um, that it's been uh, steady, it seems to be rational, uh, the way that they have kept their cards close to their chest and now gone after um, all seven, they've arrested them. Uh, the, the proof of the pudding will, will come in court, obviously, but I think that we have to applaud the police here for doing good work, giving us that level of detail. Um, they really seem to to know what's happening in this case, the roles of each of these uh, people that are arrested. I know the concern is always that it's just the, the, the button men, as we call them, the shooters that get arrested and not possibly the person who actually orders the hit. I think that's what we're going to, to wait and see what happens in the trial with that. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Very good afternoon, Mendy. Mendy, of course, one will say that with the development of AKA murder suspects, one is happy with the development, but maybe it will be even proper for these people to to really say who really ordered them to to kill the person. Because normally they they don't disclose. And until such time, the police manage to get information from these people in order to, to, to disclose who sent them. We'll never stop this issue of where people are hiring others to, to, to kill other people. Mushere, bye. Thanks, Mushere. Lots of response uh, to these developments, that interview with uh, the Brigadier. I'll bring you some of that uh, throughout the show. Uh, but let's take a different look now at the issue of, of crime. Um, a report released by Statistics South Africa titled Child Series Volume 2, Crimes Against Children, uh, paints a very worrying picture of uh, rape cases against children. It tells us that rape cases for children increased by 6.3 percentage points between 2015 and uh, 2020. Let's unpack that now. Um, in, in terms of what exactly it says with Soli Molai, who's the acting DDG for Population and Social Stats. Acting DDG, thank you very much for your time and for coming on the Madeira Report. Uh, take us through broadly uh, the findings of this report. Uh, thank you and uh, good day to the listeners. As you have mentioned, we released a report. This is the second round of the report. So I think our main objectives of putting together the report, we wanted to have a, a broader view in terms of the, 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 I mean, the crime that is being reported to the police and also look at what, from our side, from the household survey, the data that we're collecting around uh, victims of crime. So the report is looking at both data sets and because we strongly believe that the two data sets, they complement each other. So if you look at from the data that's coming from uh, SAPS, looking at the percentage of offenses for children aged seven, seven, 17 years and younger that were reported in those uh, years that we have uh, managed to get data, which is 2015 up until 2019-20, we have noticed that uh, rape has been, uh, as you've mentioned, has been the most common um, crime that is being experienced by children 17 years and older. Is sitting now around 39.7%, followed by common assault, which is sitting around 24.1%, and assault, which uh, GBH, sitting around 17.0%. You mentioned that you look at, at both data sets. What is the disparity um, in terms of crimes that are reported to the police in terms of, of uh, child uh, crimes against children, in uh, rape cases specifically, um, and those which, which are not? 
Yes, no, thanks for that question because from the household side, what we are seeing in terms of the, the crimes uh, or household crimes that we're picking up from the household is that your, the sexual offenses uh, type of crimes, they are actually difficult to be measured through the household because I think me and you, we know that most of this are done by someone that is close to home. I mean, even the same survey that we are collecting, uh, we've noticed that from the survey side, we the household members that are actually aware of the person who have committed uh, even an assault. It's either someone that they know or a relative or a, a, a friend. It, I mean, that percentage is around uh, 48%. So when you look at the crimes that are committed coming from the household service, house breaking is number one, home robbery is number two, and assault. And then your sexual offense, they are actually at the lower scale, which is around sitting around 2.3%. So that is why we're using both sides because we can pick up the sexual offense as, as a type of a crimes from the crimes that are reported from the police. Because as right. you know, both data sets, they had their own uh, limitation because um, it depending on whether it was reported, that's the only time we're picking it up from, from the police side. Uh, sorry, this is the second report. I understand there's going to be four. Um, ultimately, what is the, the intention? So we're planning to update this report because, as I said, we managed to get data up until 2019, 2020. And you remember that is the financial year where we, we, it was, we can call it as a COVID year. And it will be very interesting to see these numbers um, as we go coming to, towards the 2024, how we perform in terms of these numbers. And I think the main um, aim is that our stakeholders, mostly who are policymakers, we wanted to give them a product that talks to all these two products so that they have a better uh, holistic view in terms of some of these policy uh, issues that we are dealing with. Solly, thank you very much for unpacking that. Uh, Solly Malai is the acting DDG for Population and Social Stats at Statistics South Africa, uh, unpacking the, this report, the Data Agency's Crimes Against Children report, which is being released in four parts. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Good afternoon, Mandy. Uh, we need the mastermind. I repeat, we need the mastermind. Thank you. So this is always going to be the, the argument from the public, right? Is does the police, do the police have the mastermind? They've given us a full breakdown of who they have. They, they believe that they have the coordinator. Um, and as the police spokesperson said, they'll find out during the trial whether or not there is anybody else that needs to be arrested. On the WhatsApp line, Hi, Mandy. I agree the police should be commended for their work on this case. Why then can't they apply this to all cases as they have shown they are capable of doing this? It's unfair that they apply themselves when there is public pressure. Not everyone is a celebrity, but we're all equal before the law and should be treated as such. That's the view from Natalie Odette saying, well done, Saps, for your persistence. So a lot of praise, a lot of applause for the police. Others saying, yeah, no, Mandy, the hitmen of the four guys, the kingpins have already uh, chucked Vali. Um, okay, um, I need to be educated on that. Don't see it progressing any further. Uh, and this is what we're going to see play out in trial now, is whether or not maybe some of the spotters will turn and maybe they'll uh, give give evidence against a potential mastermind uh, or whoever is behind this. Um, are the hitmen's just the four guys? Are they kingpins? There are lots of examples of this in South Africa. Hopefully this is a watertight case. 702. 702. Mandy Weiner. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m.
just before the break, I was telling you about StatsSA's Crimes Against Children report and what it tells us. Well, uh, here's a, a very um, realistic uh, understanding of that report because they are still uh, searches underway for Jocelyn Smith, who has been uh, missing in the Saldana Bay area. The Saldana Bay Mayor Andre Truta saying that uh, misinformation resulted in some vigilante action in the area as well, uh, which impacted the search for the missing six-year-old. Carlo Peterson, EWN reporter, is following that one for us. Carlo, good afternoon to you. Tell us about the latest developments in this case. Good afternoon, Mandy. Yes, and so yesterday we, we visited the community of Madopos there in Saldana Bay. Madopos, of course, is the community where Jocelyn went missing from over a week ago. She also grew up in that area. Uh, we spoke to some of the ward councillors there and they have relayed that on Monday night, an angry mob went on a rampage in the community. Um, they ransacked some of the homes of people that they believed were suspects. They also tried to uh, to approach Jocelyn's mother and her boyfriend, accusing them of being involved in Jocelyn's disappearance. Um, the couple have now been taken to a place of safety. Um, this morning, we, we, we spoke to Saldana Bay Mayor Andre Truta for an update on the search day today, and this is what he had to say. Search, unfortunately, has had a lot of political interference now, and unfortunately, people's houses have been broken into, and uh, there's even a young gentleman that was robbed of everything that he had. He's running a car wash there. So the police is not keen on organized searching at the moment. Hmm. So, so Carlo, what happens now in terms of that search? So, so what the, the, the mayor has said is that they are trying to, to, to prevent the, the community from being part of that search um, because, um, as we see what has happened over the last two days, um, it's become quite volatile. Um, so what he said is that the search will continue um, on an official level, um, uh, but they are trying to prevent the community from being part of that search. Carlo, thank you very much. Carlo Peterson, EWN reporter there with the latest of that search for the missing six-year-old girl, Justin Smith, in uh, Saldana, that area. Of course, it's always a concern when there is uh, any kind of vigilante action. The community wants to get involved. We've seen this in many instances uh, in Mitchell's Plain as an example, but um, the police also need to be able to do their work here. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. You may have heard about this case with Sasfin, the bank, and SARS. So let's unpack that for you because we now have a response from Sasfin, the bank, about how they're going to defend themselves against the taxman. It's a unique case that's been filed at the Gauteng Division of the High Court. Uh, it dates back to a long time, uh, but most recently, of course, uh, just before Christmas last year, the SA Revenue Service is going after Sasfin Bank Limited for billions and billions of rand, at least 8.2 billion rand in untaxed funds. And this is all related to the so-called gold mafia, the gold leaf tobacco money laundering racket. And a lot of work has been done around this by Paulie van Veek at Daily Maverick. So Paulie joining us now to explain all of this. Paulie, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Good afternoon, Mandy. Thanks for having me. So let's try and start at the beginning here uh, before we get to the most recent developments of the response from Sasfin to SARS. Give us a broad outline of what exactly Sasfin is accused of doing. So Sasfin, 
must be held liable, so state, for damages suffered by the revenue service, but actually by the country, because the bank facilitated a large-scale tax evasion for more than a decade. In this case, specifically, SARS 2013 to 2023. Now, the issue way back from 2013 already was that it seems, according to SARS's data, that companies linked to Gold Leaf Tobacco Corporation, which you led this discussion with, uh, started to by people in the bank um, and in the private sector and the government sector to assist and collude in order to move a hell of a lot of money outside of the country. So uh, what happened with Suspen specifically is that it now seems like at least 11 people inside the bank, um, including IT people, the risk unit, colluded to assist with this money laundering and moving um, billions of rand, 8.2 billion rand at least, um, that's where the figure stands at the moment, to offshore destinations like Dubai, Mauritius and Switzerland. That money is most probably never coming back to South Africa and SARS says it's untaxed and therefore they wanted to tax it, but the local companies have now closed down all their local assets are so little, few, that uh, it's impossible to seize and attach enough to pay the tax debt. So now SARS is suing for damages. And the reason is that uh, the people inside Sasson, some of the employees, caused uh, the money to be moved outside the country based on very sketchy documents. Some of them were faked, some of them didn't exist at all, and some were incomplete or, or uh, not, didn't, were fraudulent, in effect. Mm. And then some of those bank statements were deleted, which is actually a, a severe crime. And, uh, and some of the money cross-border money movements to the Reserve Bank have been deleted as well. Our listeners will know who trade internationally that these would refer to the Bobkus reports. They themselves have to fill in um, and, and ensure that the Reserve Bank knows about. So, Paulie, is the allegation that Sassfin was intentionally washing the money, uh, was this just um, a, a rogue a collection of employees? Was there criminal intent? Because Sassfin has now responded saying they've got a very heavyweight legal opinion that says, in fact, they've done nothing wrong. Yes, and so differs with that. So Sassfin says... We cannot be held accountable for what a few rogue people inside Saspen did. We acted uh, when we found out and we tried to ensure that the right thing is done. And we identified 11 people and laid charges with the authorities against those 11 people who conspired. SARS says you did not act quick enough. It took you years. This has going, been going on for a decade. Uh, the timeline suggests, for example, that in 2023, some of the last payments were made uh, towards offshore destinations, which is a long time after uh, Sussman already knew that they were most probably harboring a bunch of criminals, right? And then SARS says, because you were so negligent, that's why we now hold you accountable. Um, And that was what we had from stars in the papers. But in the meantime, Commissioner Edward Kiesvetter went on the record and said that the broader principle here is that banks cannot continue to 
facilitate or allow or be negligent to the extent that the country then um, loses billions of rand and then just say sorry and go on um, and business continue as usual. At one point, SARS needs to also hold the banks accountable for severe and gross negligence. We know, of course, that uh, this is very much a, a manifestation of the grey listing by FATF last year and the lack of measures or controls by South African institutions in terms of making sure that they do properly regulate uh, in terms of, of money laundering. How important is this focus on the private sector when it comes to state capture? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we have to add, if we look at the, the FATF measures, we have to add private corporations and banks into that mix. It's not only state authorities who need to adhere to FATF regulations and who need to help us get out off the grey listing. Banks have a massive influence um, and they see things on their side that SARS and the Reserve Bank, the Financial Intelligence Centre and the Hawks will not see. Um, and they are sort of the first line of defence of money movements. That's why the banks are there, and that's why there's stringent banking uh, regulations and reserve bank regulations. Um, And I think it seems as if that is part of the overarching argument here, is that we are already in trouble. We are not doing this thing, meaning regulating money movements, well enough, according to the world. And therefore, we need to get you up to standard to ensure that South Africa can can say that we are uh, that we are ready to be mm. removed from the grey list. Paulie, thank you so much. Uh, Paulie van Veek, investigative journalist at Daily Maverick, speaking to us there. Go and read her stories uh, on Daily Maverick about this. If you followed the, uh, the Al Jazeera documentary, Gold Mafia, you'll also know about uh, the details around Gold Leaf Tobacco Corporation um, and the attempts to siphon billions in dirty money from South Africa's illicit uh, cigarette trade to safe havens as well. An important focus here on the private sector and state capture, but of course also um, important to highlight the response from SASFIN saying in, uh, in its SENS announcement that it believes that it took decisive action when it became aware of this unlawful scheme. It uh, instituted an expanded investigation and it's confident that its uh, legal opinion will stand up. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Hi, Mandy. Congrats to the police. Um, however, I noticed that... Uh, the brigadier avoided uh, talking about the mastermind. The highest person that they've caught uh, seems to be the coordinator of the shooting. And uh, besides, this case doesn't give me much hope uh, because uh, they only do this uh, in high-profile cases. I mean, they're using their best resources in order to uh, you know, succeed in this case. They wouldn't do that for me. Thanks, Farai. Fry, such an important point that you you make here. So I did ask the uh, brigadier whether or not they believed that they had everyone. Was there potentially another layer? Um, And she did say that they're confident they have everyone, but who knows what's going to emerge in the trial. Maybe uh, there will be a, um, a mastermind that they're not aware of. So there's always the question around that. And then there have been concerns raised about whether or not this case is getting preferential treatment because of the high-profile nature of AKA and, and TIPS. Um, and this is always the case, right, is that there, 
if it's a high-profile case, there's going to be more attention. That's the nature of, of how it works. Uh, think about the Oscar Pistorius case as an example. There's also more pressure on the police to get it right. So I think they're between a rock and a hard place here because if they don't make arrests, they're under fire. If they do make arrests, they're, they're under fire. Um, but I do think that they, they probably are throwing their very best resources at this. 702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Let's walk the talk. The inquiry into the Marshalltown fire is continuing. City officials are giving testimony there. EWN reporter Alpha Ramashwana is following that one for us. Alpha, good afternoon to you. Take us through the testimony there today. Good afternoon, Mandy. So, yes, we're starting to see some speed and some movement in the commission of inquiry into the Marshalltown fire. And like you said, we've had a series of uh, city officials, MNCs, uh, coming to give their testimonies. However, today, the person who was the witness was uh, the former chairperson of the board of the Usindiso Ministries. Uh, this, is the in- and this is an NGO which received a lease with the Johannesburg property company to run a shelter at the Usindiso building for abused women and children. His name is Mr. Glenn Selskid. And he was there the whole time as, you know, uh, the shelter was running as usual and as it was slowly transitioning it into what it became. He says that in about 2016, there were about four women in the building who refused to leave the shelter after their rehabilitation program. Just for some context, the building would house abused women and children for a period of six to 12 months uh, in the, so that they can be rehabilitated and recover from the trauma that they experienced. But he, the, he says there were four women who refused to leave and wanted to permanently stay there and then they started mobilizing uh, organizations, external political parties and organizations to uh, come and ensure that these people don't leave the building. And that's how he says it all started. And then that's when he realized that the situation is getting out of hand. He details that uh, uh, at that point, uh, so many more people started to refuse to leave that building. And he details that on one day, on one uh, night, the last time he went to the Usindiso building, he had a meeting with the residents asking them to kindly vacate the place and that's when the whole fight started and that's the last time he ever went to the building and that's when it was abandoned. Last week we heard that the building was hijacked in 2018, but let's take a listen to what else he had to tell the panel of commissioners. The ladies were, any one of the ladies, not just those four, but Generally, we would allow them in there for 6 to 12 months. The rehabilitation process would be up to 12 months. So every lady that comes in were under the impression that, or were given the impression that by the end of at least a year, they would be rehabilitated and then they would leave the shelter. Sometimes it didn't work that way. And so um, these ladies had overstayed their 12 months. But they had become... um, disruptive, disruptive to the programs there, uh, bullying the other ladies and uh, so they needed to um, well be approached and they were approached to say that they needed to leave. Yeah, in, in paragraph 11, um, you refer to steps that were taken by Usindiso Shelter um, against this women. Can you elaborate on that? Um, we did a legal consult, but um, folk came in, talked about um, the, the, the agreement that they had made with the ladies, because every lady has an agreement when they come into the shelter. And um, then um, after the, the consults, the ladies were given letters of, of um, 
what, what do you call it where you um, eviction 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 letters they were given eviction letters which they needed to sign and they obviously refused to sign the letters Thank you to Alpha Ramashwana for bringing us that audio and that report as the Marshalltown inquiry continues. 702, the midday report, Monday to Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. In KwaZulu Natal, the Premier Numusa Dube Ngube has been giving her State of the Province address. She has been focusing on Shoh. When you look at KZN and, and the issues there, we know about, of course, the flooding, the civil unrest, the province being hit by all of that. So she's been looking at those issues, also the issues of backlogs at the ports as well. Have a listen to the Premier of KZN. Having almost been brought to its knees by the floods, the civil unrest, and the global economic challenges, today our economy is back on its feet, gradually addressing the damage, which is estimated to about 33 billion. Honorable members, our coastal province, we have a Ikweba. The port system, that is very vital for the growth of our economy and the growth of the economy of the country. At the port of Devon, after having received words and introduction, the container surcharge by shipping lines, na kona, sesquazile uguti umsebenzi, uboye kogotwa ilegile, ama vessels encourage, kate go December or November, Sasbona ama vessels out 60, emile elindele umgena, jenga manjes kuluma ngo januari, besebo ama vessels alago 10 ya 12 pela, asegwazi uguti alinde, kodwa umsebenzi omuse uyakube. That's the Premier of KZN, Numusa Dube Mube, giving her State of the Province address. That sound is courtesy of the SABC. And of course, uh, dealing there with the issues of flooding, of civil unrest, of the backlogs at the ports as well. Uh, all of that uh, that they're dealing with in KwaZulu Natal. The Midday Report. So if you missed it earlier, of course, uh, the breaking news coming on the show that a seventh person has now been arrested in connection with the murder of AKA uh, Keenan Forbes uh, and uh, Tibbs as well, Tibelo Motswane. The police telling us that that seventh person that was taken into custody in uh, the Durban area was one of the spotters. So we now have uh, a lot of detail out of the police about this plan to shoot AKA, telling us that AKA was the target of the shooting um, and also telling us that the police made the first arrest in April last year uh, already and how they've managed to keep it 
quiet. They've been building this case. Uh, they have arrested uh, seven suspects now. They've told us what cars were involved. Uh, the first suspect was arrested in Balhar in Cape Town. And so it goes on. Uh, 800,000 rand paid for that hit. 130,000 rand going to each of the suspects. Uh, and now we're going to have a court appearance tomorrow. So we'll be bringing you that. And of course, it's all going to come down to whether or not this case sticks in court.